Hello, I am Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And today we are fortunate to be talking to Professor Peter Struck of the University of Pennsylvania, a man who knows a thing or two about the ancient symbolon, the ancient enigma, the ancient hyponoia, and a bunch of other interesting terms. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to talk to you. So you wrote a book called The Birth of the Symbol, Ancient Readers at the Limits of Their Texts. That's 2004, Princeton University Press. And it's a very complex book. It has, um, it makes some very nuanced, large-scale arguments with lots of subsidiary points. And maybe the way to break things down most usefully for our audience is to talk about the terms you discuss. So for me, there are some Greek words that supply very useful kind of nodes, focal nodes of subject matter, namely symbolon, a word you spend a lot of time on, and uh, enigma, which is one of my all-time favorite words in any language. It's a very fascinating <laughs> term. So maybe we could talk about those. I'm happy to. Uh, the, these terms, I think, do have a real importance uh, for uh, Western esotericism. It's also true that they're important within the allegorical tradition of literary reading. Um, and the book was focused on that, but um, the, the tradition of allegory in antiquity weaves in and out of these esoteric currents of thought. So they have to do with one another. Um, from the literary perspective, uh, I was curious about the number of ways that people have read Homer over the years. And in classical literary criticism, some will insist that most of the ancients read in a kind of rhetorical way and looked at a, a, a poet mostly as a performer of speech and using tools that are drawn from the delivery of persuasive prose. Uh, literary critics in antiquity would pick apart uh, poetry using that lens. And that it's surely true that there were many people that read Homer and the other great poets using these rhetorical tools, but there was a group of people that read him quite differently using a different set of tools, and that's what I set out to kind of try to explore in the book. Um, these were people that were convinced that Homer had built within him a whole range of hidden messages uh, that would require diligent interpretive work uh, to extract. So looking at Homer in a way as an esoteric text, I think, is a way of thinking about what I was trying to capture in the book. Uh, the term uh, symbol or Greek symbolon is one of the key elements of the, of the vocabulary of this group of people that read Homer this way. Another one that's, uh, I think, probably uh, less important, but that is uh, more widely known among us is allegoria in Greek or allegory. Now, the readers that I mostly look at are, would be classified as allegorical readers of Homer, and there's ways of talking about exactly how that term fits into this discourse, and I'm happy to do that and, and as, we, as we move on. But that, the term actually enters in quite late into the tradition of allegorical reading, and there were people that were reading Homer four or five hundred, six hundred years um, before they were reading him in a way that we would call allegorically uh, before that term was ever in use. The term that is the most consistent throughout the tradition is is your favorite term and mine, enigma, and it's real it's associated verb, uh, adverb, adjective, um, and these point to uh, in the way that our English equivalent of of enigma, uh, these point to an understanding that 
reading Homer is never going to be as straightforward as trying to you know pick apart the nuances, even the very nuances of a of a piece of persuasive prose. Reading Homer is going to be more like approaching a riddle and trying to solve it. A person could understand exactly what the words say by using the tools of rhetoric or any other kind of uh, careful explication de text. But then after the text is fully understood, there's some further meaning that's being hinted at inside of the text. And the term anima is the kind of core piece of this tradition from the very beginning to the very end. And uh, there are early examples of it. In fact, I think probably it's I think it's it's supportable to say that the, our first piece of surviving prose from antiquity, Phericides of Syros, fragments of him that are preserved, one of which is the way of forwarding an uh, allegorical reading of Homer. So it's a very old way of reading back at least to the 6th century before the Common Era, uh, and it proceeds through greater and, and lesser moments of being attested, uh, but I think surely was there present all the way through uh, at late antiquity, so a, you know, a thousand years of, of reading Homer. And these tools are put to use by different thinkers and, and, and different readers for different in different contexts for different purposes, always. Uh, but I think what's consistent across the, the, the sweep of this allegorical tradition is uh, an understanding that Homer, in order to read Homer well, a person must be attuned uh, to trying to tease out his riddles. Uh, and not every reader of Homer thinks that, but this group of readers does. Mm. Now, we have a few terms here. Um, allegoria, as you mentioned, this um, is earliest attested in Plutarch, is it not? So, Indeed, yes. Imperial period Platonist, to whom we will get in due course. But Enigma goes right back. Do we actually have Enigma attested in Phoresides? It is. It yeah. is. Oh, God, how to see it. Because <laughs> um, we hardly have any Phoresides, right? Exactly. It's very little. But he talks about Homer as having produced uh, an Enigma, and, as riddling. Yeah. Now, it's it's hard to say. We'll have to, of course, put some brackets around this to say uh, the, the attestations of him uh, rely on other people citing him many years later. Uh, so we, we'll, we need to. But according to our best uh, estimate of, the, of, of which texts are just testimony, which texts are actual quotations, we think that the term does show up in his, in his own prose. While we're discussing Enigma, I wonder if you could give us... Um a bit of a genealogy of the term from its earliest to the later uses, because it does have, there are commonalities right the way through, um, but there are also evolutions, it seems to me. Um, if you look in Little and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, you simply get riddle, dark saying, hint, something like that. So they basically, Little and Scott are saying, it means a riddle. And it does undeniably mean a riddle in the classical sense of a riddle, like the riddle of the Sphinx. But this is obviously an extended use of the term, right? Indeed. Um, and, and there's, a, I mean, riddle, I think, does pretty well in English. But one thing I think to probably to steer away from uh, is that there are many different kinds of riddles. And, and one to steer away from is the idea that there's a riddle with a final solution. And that once you understand that final solution, then you're sort of done. I don't think that, it, at least... Again, different thinkers think differently about this, but most of the time when the term is used in, in the tradition of reading that I'm talking about, uh, it's used to label a certain kind of, it's not indeterminacy exactly, a certain kind of surplus, I think is probably the best way to put it, that the text itself will always have more to say than what appears on the surface. Um, so there's, it is not as though a person in having a, a, a good final reading of the text has 
claim to have exhausted what's there. It's that a person has found something, yet another thing, usually, that's in Homer's text that it may displace this or that other reading, but it's there to kind of add to the, the ongoing appreciation of the, of the full surplus of wisdom that's in, inside of Homer. And the term has many different applicable uses. It's, it's useful in describing this aspect of Homer. It's also useful in describing uh, the style of a, of a pre-Socratic philosopher like Heraclitus. Uh, he's thought of as being the great riddler and using the term that's cognate with uh, enigma, with the noun that we're talking about. So it's useful in the, in the context of certain kinds of esoteric philosophy. And it's also useful, and this for me was a very important moment in, in teasing out how this reading works, it's useful in the reading of oracles. It's thought that oracles don't produce straightforward statements. So the term uh, can also be or used to describe the language of oracles. So oracles yeah. don't speak in straightforward prose, and a person might um, use tools to discern all the connections of the of the uh, of the sentences and map them all out and, and understand the meaning of each sentence. And yet there will be some surplus there that the God has intended for you, and that surplus is always going to be inscrutable. Uh, in, in retrospect, it usually makes itself clear, but uh, sometimes not even in retrospect is it clear what the what the oracle meant. So I think that the enigma stands in all of these contexts, in esoteric philosophy, in the context of divination, in the context of allegorical reading, um, it stands as a, a marker that there's more to these words than you think there might be, and that, that there will always kind of be more. It's an invitation to find surplus hidden meanings. When you when you lay it out that way, it almost sounds postmodern. You know what I mean? Well, and, you know, I think yeah, I, I think that there's there there's not. A, I, I don't think that there's a an equivalent sort of attachment to the idea of absolute indeterminacy, which I think happens in some postmodern contexts. But there is surely surely a sense of in a way that I think Derrida in particular is is attuned to that uh, texts produce more meaning. Uh, than is capable of being uh, sort of pinned down at any given point. Mm. And that's surely happening with the Enigma. The, the text is constantly producing more meaning uh, than, than is, is able to be fully reckoned. So we have the term in Pherecides of Syros, as you mentioned, 6th century philosopher. We also see it multiple times in the Derveni Papyrus, in a, not a Homeric context, but, but an analogous context, so interpreting a hexameter poem of an epicish genre, or of a Hesiodic genre, vaguely speaking. So, a traditional source of wisdom. Exactly. Um, also very early, 4th century, I think they want to date that too. If I could just jump in, the, the text Please. itself, uh, we've got good dating to the uh, you know early 4th century, um, but then, uh, or sorry, later 4th century, but then the handwriting that's there is exhibiting a middle 4th century. The ideas that are contained in the text, though uh, Walter Berker claimed, and I follow him, uh, show no trace of either Aristotle or Plato. So likely to be 5th century ideas uh, that were written down in the form that they were uh, were on the, on the papyrus that we have in the middle of the 4th century, which itself was burned uh, in the, at the beginning of the 4th century before the common era. So a longer tradition, which is what you'd expect anyway. You wouldn't expect someone to just invent that from whole cloth. Exactly. So we have this tradition of, in what we might call the early-ish classical period, of, of interpreting our hexameter, traditional hexameter poems as having um, hidden meanings of various kinds through enigmas. And then what happens with Plato? Because, of course, Plato uses this term a few times in a very pointed manner. 
Do you think he, as so often, he's doing something new with it, or is he just using it in the traditional sense? A uh, good way of saying it. Yeah, I, it, he, he is, I think, in, in a way that is uh, typical of Plato, he's attuned to this current, this intellectual current in his day. And he's, he's conscious of it, and he, he's, I think, purposefully trying to uh, bend it to his own purposes, uh, so make some use of it to the extent that people are used to thinking this way and then uh, do the best he can to co-opt it for the kind of ends that he wants it to, to achieve. Uh, there's a, a few important parts of, of Homer, and I won't be able to touch on them all, but, you know, he is famously uh, distrustful of poets' claims to knowledge. Um, and at the same time, himself uh, is a, a master wordsmith, uh, shows in prose almost this kind of artistry that you would expect from a poet of, of uh, the, the most uh, intricate kind of poetic forms, but in the, in the prose that he, he shapes, and is not averse to introducing fictive narratives uh, that no. we call his myths uh, into, his, into his discourse at important times. So it, it's, a, it's a puzzle to try to figure out exactly what Plato's stance toward this uh, poetic material is. And so there are declarative statements that are very clear, and they're sometimes in contrast with one another. Uh, surely he, in the Republic, leaves very little room for us to put any trust in poets at all. He thinks of them as, uh, in the book three, as he's considering the education of the guardians, uh, poets are likely to be those that mislead us from the truth because all they do is they play to our predilections toward pleasurable things. Uh, and in a kind of tawdry way, uh, the poets titillate us with things that uh, speak to us in our very lowest parts of our souls. So they're at best uh, a distraction in, Plato, in book three of the Republic, and at worst, they're actually leading us down the primrose path to falsehood and the kinds of behaviors and attitudes that are very deleterious to what's good for us. Then in book 10, something sort of, sort of deeper comes out in terms of his distrust of the poets, uh, they become the kind of icon for him of the of representers, of imitators. So uh, after we've had the, the allegory of the cave in book six or book seven of the Republic, we realize just how fraught this imitative or representational kind of dynamics can be because we understand that the whole material world is a mere representation of the real world, which is the world of the immaterial world of the forms. So in a world where representation always carries this kind of weight of trying to reproduce an ontology that it can't live up to and therefore epistemological decay, introducing more representation in the form of poetic representations, which for Plato is an imi famously an imitation of the material world, which is itself an imitation of the real world of the forms, makes the poets deeply suspect. Not only might the kind of, you know, they be sort of ir irrelevant to the truth, but they're actually purposefully pulling us away from the real truth, which is the uh, attempt to get to the forms. So all those things, I think, need to be the starting point of, of understanding where, where Plato might place the poets. But then there are other moments when Plato acknowledges that there is such a tradition of reading Homer as we've been talking about and talks about the poets as potentially um, producing not just straightforward meanings, but also producing enigmata, which have hidden meanings to them. And that's a terminology he uses in a few places, usually to characterize other people's claims about these poets. And then he might test those claims and usually they come up wanting 
or they're put in the mouth of someone who you should distrust because of the way the, the dialogue is structured. So someone that claims a poet has produced an enigma for something, uh, you might just think uh, that that person, Plato's representing that person in a way that makes you less sure that they're right. Then in the Republic, and I'll let this kind of be my statement on Plato for now and see if you've got more questions, but um, there is this uh, famous piece where he's talking about the poets uh, in, the, in the Republic, and he says, well, maybe we'll let some of them in because it's thought that they produce these under meanings, and he uses this term, hyponoiae. And he says, but the problem is that young people that turn to this poetry, they won't know what's an undermeaning and what isn't. So there, the danger seems to be that there's, he seems to allow that poets could have beneath the surface of their poems that seem so uh, distasteful and maybe even, you know, uh, would run us afoul of, of getting toward true ideas of, of the gods and the world. It could be that those have undermeanings in them, but it, it takes such, a, such care and lore and tradition and esoteric knowledge to get at those undermeanings that there's more danger that they're going to steer people uh, the wrong way based on their surface message. So there he seems to allow that hidden meanings might exist, but says that we should, that's not a basis for us to allow poetry into the Republic. So well, that's some thoughts on Plato. People can contemplate this and then maybe to put that into a another layer of weird um, interpretive devilry, we have the fact that Plato himself is obviously writing in a tricky way in so many of his dialogues and doesn't just lay his cards on the table and tell you about the truth. Otherwise, he wouldn't write dialogues in the first place. So he is totally open to all of the criticisms he puts against the poets. Um, I, it, I, I, th I think he is, he is oftentimes open. Uh, there'd be a little more to say, but I think he's oftentimes open. You know, one thing, he doesn't write in poetry, so he doesn't have, he writes in prose. Uh, and one of the great fears is this, uh, all the trickery and beguilement that's built into poetry, he thinks he escapes. Yeah. Uh, another thing is that some of the themes of the poets that he points to, he himself studiously avoids. So he doesn't like overly emotional things. He doesn't like fear of death. And when he creates his fictive stories, they don't include overly emotional things and they don't include fear of death. Usually the stories point to a reason why we ought not to fear death. Uh, separation from the body should be a great thing. And, and his stories mostly do talk about that's a really good point yeah. um, he, he doesn't have the gods yeah. doing immoral stupid stuff and no. having fights and all that stuff you see in homer that he just found so appalling exactly exactly mm. uh, i don't think this exonerates him from the most stringent charges he has against the poets uh, particularly this idea in book 10 of just representations of representations and this i mean this might be part of the reason why not maybe not exactly in these terms but why socrates himself uh, was so distrustful of writing uh, we've got some other reasons that are adduced as to why, but that could be part of it as well. So just to produce yet another invitation, uh, maybe a person ought not to do that. And, and Plato could be thought to be, you know, run afoul of some of his own most stringent uh, charges against the poets. Mm. But again, he wrote a bunch of dialogues in which he, he preserves the uh, Socratic reasons why you shouldn't write stuff. And yeah. even, <laughs> even, yeah. even the seventh letter, assuming the whole thing is authentic, mm -hmm. Again, he says, well, I've sort of never written my true doctrine, but then why did you write all this stuff in the first place? And if you're not just doing kind of nugatory jeu d'esprit, or if you're serious, why did you even write these things, etc. I love Plato. Now, if we can, if it's not too um, oversimplifying things, if we can move then to, from Plato to the people who read 
Plato and took him very seriously indeed, that is the Platonists. Do we see an evolution in Enigma in the way they use it? Yes, indeed. Uh, I'll, I can focus mostly, I think the most exciting things happen among the Neoplatonists. You know, this is uh, starting third uh, century, the common era forward. So Plato's corpus had been thoroughly studied over generations, uh, sometimes with pulling out certain aspects of him and other times pulling out different aspects of him. So there was a, a period after Plato's death and up through into the kind of high imperial period in Rome where the skeptical Plato was really forwarded. And we had a sense of an emphasis of the Plato who has these early Socratic dialogues where someone will walk in with a claim and Socrates will just simply dismantle the claim. That tradition evolves, and uh, we start to have Platonists in the middle Platonic period, kind of leading up to the figures that I would talk about most. We start to think about Plato as not just the skeptical Plato, but the more uh, declarative Plato, the Plato that doesn't just take apart ideas, but actually positively proposes them. These tend to be the later dialogues, not the earlier ones. And for this group, dialogues like the Timaeus or the, or the uh, Parmenides, um, these are the really crucial ones. And these are the ones, interestingly, that are not so much based on a link back and forth discussion, but are instead longer disquisitions on, on broad topics. These are the ones that the later figures look to as kind of keys to understanding the corpus as a whole. And in their reading, they start to pull out a whole set of tools to analyze Plato's dialogues that's, that look a lot like uh, the kind of traditional tools that people had used to find such meanings in Homer. So in a way that is fascinating, it's well understood in the scholarship to be, uh, have kind of be laden with irony and, and another, it's, it's, it's hard to get a total fix, a complete fix on this, but the tools to understand Homer's allegorical poet, a, a project of which Plato himself was deeply skeptical, now get turned on Plato's corpus uh, to find inside of him a whole set of under meanings to the, the straightforward discussion that he's making. Um, in some contexts, you know, this is what Plato would precisely want to have happen. Uh, you should never accept anything at face value. The Hellenic scrutiny that you uh, deliver against any statement uh, should pick it apart and, and show it the things that it, it fails to do. And then it might also find some things that are subtly hidden inside of the text for those that are reading carefully. Uh, I think that's not a problem for Plato, but not the idea that there was some hidden entelechy of the universe uh, of all wisdom uh, inside of his dialogues. And his later followers, particularly figures like Iamblichus and Proclus, Lempiodorus, they start to find inside of his works the most extravagant kinds of meanings, even more extravagant than people were accustomed to finding in Homer uh, using the same toolbox. So with Plotinus, we see a, a very restrained use of these techniques. He'll sometimes... Indeed look to just nudge Plato in a certain direction to make him agree more with what he wants Plato to say, but very much basing himself in Platonic text. By my judgment, obviously, these things are always, there are no rules of interpretation that you can quantify, so every scholar is going to have a slightly different opinion on this. But there's a reason that people like Augustine, who read Plotinus, said this man is a expounder of Plato, like a, a very clear expounder of Plato. But then no one reads Proclus and says he's a very clear, straightforward expounder <laughs> of Plato, you know, right, right. because he's bringing in um, the, the Orphic wisdom and the Chaldean oracles. And it's all one thing for him. And Plato is it one is. ingredient in the mix. Yes, it is all one thing for him. I think uh, Plato is, is um, he's kind of a key, the probably the key ingredient, surely, for, for Proclus. Mm. Uh, but 
But it's true that all of them are thought to be speaking the same language and saying the same rough thing, because the world is the way it is. And whether a person is looking at it with careful scrutiny in one period in one particular location or in a different period in a different location, a person may well come up with the same wisdom, uh, which is uh, the, the wisdom that is anchored mostly in Plato, but is also echoed in, in many other thinkers about mm. how the world really is. And the world, in the end, is, reflects this very Platinian system of, a, of an overflowing one that produces all of the reality of the world uh, from the immaterial layers of, of a very high up of, of intellectual reality, close to the one uh, down to the very lowest uh, material world. Now, there's one wonderful piece of late Platonist um, interpretation that we should talk about, which is Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, which you yes. discuss in your book, in which Porphyry goes back to Homer and brings out some wonderful subtexts in Homer. But before we do that, I wonder if we could back up and bring in the term symbolon. Yes, yes. Because this is this is the term that Porphyry uses in the on the Cave of the Nymphs very profligately. I think so. And you have some really interesting things to say in your book about the symbolon. So let me just ask you some leading questions here. My understanding is that the symbolon, I mean it's a very complex term, it actually has a few meanings, but its original meaning, as far as we can gather, is some kind of token that's used in contracts. So for example, we have a an ostracon, a, a shard of pottery, which is one of the things that were lying around a lot in profusion in antiquity. And we're making a deal of some kind. So we snap this thing in half. You keep one half, I keep the other half. And then that acts as a kind of bank card of antiquity, where when we meet up again, or some say our lawyers meet up or our representatives, they fit the pieces back together. And the fact that they fit perfectly, there's no way to fake that. You go, okay, we have a deal because we both that the two pieces fit, right? This is a symbolon. Exactly, exactly. And part of what I want to do in the book is to trace from that early beginning to this seemingly completely different way of imagining what a symbol is. Uh, in, the, in the early register, as you precisely point out, the symbol is meant to do away with any kind of interpretive fuzziness. It's meant to be a perfectly clarificatory mechanism that authorizes a linkage between two things. It, it doesn't, it's not suggestive, it's not murky, it's not hidden, uh, it's the opposite of all those things. So how is it that a, a, a term that's meant to uh, do away with ambiguities becomes a, a center of ambiguity in later materials? Uh, I think there's, there's a, the kind of key linkage here is through the Pythagorean tradition. Right. Um, Pythagoras, uh, from as early as we can tell, uh, and it's always tricky with the Pythagorean uh, corpus, but he had tokens that a person would use to authorize themselves that were back and forth recitations of a particular item in the world, and then its meaning would be said back to the other person. So it would be a kind of a two-person token sharing, you know, what are the island of the blessed? And then there would be an answer that would come back. Uh, the tetractes, which is the sound of the sirens. And, you know, there would be kind of special codes. And, and just like codes are used in a military context where there might be a watchword for the night, uh, a person calls out, I don't know, the word peanut butter, and the other person calls out the word jelly. And as long as each person knows the code, then you know who they are. But unless you do know the code, uh, then, then you've failed an authorization. Well, for the fact that Pythagoras used uh, these seemingly 
hidden and enigmatic uh, linkages between straightforward sayings and some under undercoded meaning in them, I think got Pythagoreans in the habit of thinking of symbols as being esoteric things that are hidden from the outside world. And there are probably reasons, uh, given Pythagoras's, um, what we think we know of Pythagoras's cultural context in which the cult was, it was inward turning, maybe because of external pressures. Um, there would have been a reason to have a kind of hidden way of verifying authenticity in the, in the world and not just a straightforward chit that would, you would use it. But, and that hiddenness of it, I think, added to the idea that the symbol is now something that is interpretable and right. proper interpretation is hidden and it's waiting to be found. So the Pythagorean symbolon, the either the TSD type back and forth, so what is the world? And then someone gives an answer. This is mm -hmm. one very common form of symbolon. Or other ones which are just, I mean, often the Platonists will interpret um, what we would consider Pythagorean cultic prohibitions, um, mm -hmm. like don't pick up breadcrumbs off the floor, stuff like this. They would also interpret these as symbola, right? Exactly. Um, and both types of thing are just there for Platonists to say what this really means is right. the noose gives rise to the soul or something like that. Exactly. Um, these symbola, this this use of, of a password, like basically a, an initiatory password, mm -hmm. we do see parallels in earlier mystery cult, do we not? Indeed. Yes. So it's fair to assume that the Pythagoreans took something that worked already, something yes. that initiates get a password, this is a this is a done thing. We're going to take that on, as we've done with yes. many other aspects of cult. And so I wonder, to what degree does the, and this might be an unanswerable question, to what degree does the evolution of the Pythagorean symbolon into the proto-symbolism, right, that you've identified, occur in Pythagoreanism at all? Right. And right. to what degree is it a Platonist phenomenon? Um, as, as best I can tell, but I think I would join you in being a little cautious about my surety here, but as best I can tell, uh, within the Pythagorean tradition, its main function is this uh, authenticating function. And it, it waits till later, and it's particularly within the Platonic tradition, that symbol starts to grow into a different kind of representation. It's a different kind of representational device that's much more powerful. It does something more than just authenticate an identity. Uh, it carries a whole hidden wisdom. Now, as you say, there are glimmers of this in the, in the Pythagorean tradition, but it, it waits till later. We have some examples uh, early in the uh, Roman imperial period of symbols showing up in an interpretive texts that are looking to interpret Homer uh, allegorically. It starts to show itself. And it's really with the Neoplatonists uh, that it becomes a core term and a central term of allegorical reading. And as you point to rightly, I think it's uh, exactly uh, with this text uh, by Porphyry reading uh, Homer's Cave of the Nymphs, uh, where we see it most clearly on display as a, as a technical term, meaning what we would call an allegory, an allegorical reading. Now, I wanted to ask you about this, um, because we've seen Enigma. Now, one thing we haven't talked about, we've, we've talked about the symbolon coming from the Pythagorean tradition. And one thing you notice is that when people talk about the Pythagoreans in a context where you might expect to hear the word enigma, normally they'll naturally use the term symbolon. It's almost like it's the official term for talking about secret meanings within Pythagorean materials. And enigma goes for everyone else. They also seem to talk about it in the context of the Egyptians. I don't know if you make anything of that, but it's like Pythagoreans and Egyptians have symbola, everyone else Enigmata. Uh, and is it, sorry, is it, uh, is it Neoplatonists who are saying this? Or? Um, definitely in the Platonists, Plutarch as well, 
for example. He'll, um, the, he talks about symbol, Pythagorean symbola, Egyptian symbola, right. as I recall, and then, you know, a bit of allegory here, a bit of enigma there for everyone right, else. Right. This is um, worth more study. Uh, my, my inclination would be to say uh, there would likely be a parceling out of these terms uh, across a spectrum that leads from what's very familiar to what's very strange. And what's very strange at different times, but surely for the Neoplatonists, what's far away, far afield, think people like uh, the um, uh, the Egyptians or the Chaldeans, they're old, they're far away, they're people that have reputations for exotic wisdom, they may well be able to produce meaning through these even more grand, uh, mystified ways of producing meaning. And usually when they're making a gradient of different degrees of mystification, Sumalon gets the far end. Right. Um, Enigma's a little bit more in the middle. So uh, okay. to produce symbolically is actually the most esoteric kind of thinking, if a person, if I could use such terms. Whereas to think enigmatically is to maybe more normal esoteric reading. Right. And of course, all, I mean, so much of this is a projection. It's a projection out of the vocabulary itself. Uh, there's no reason that Sumalon has to mean more, more of a stretch than an Enigma. And it's a projection, of course, onto the cultures uh, whose uh, ideas were being represented by the Neoplatonists. They were ready to think that certain cultures were very old, very stable, and had, they had reputations for exotic wisdom. And they were oftentimes non-Greek cultures, plus mm. Plato. Just to fast forward to yeah. um, a big payoff in your book where you, you say this in a very measured way and a very nuanced way, but you basically put forward the idea, the thought, that this evolution we've just talked about in the term symbolon from a kind of token, a kind of password or, or material equivalent of a password through the Pythagorean tradition, through Platonism, ends up evolving into the modern concept of symbolism. And so those of our listeners who are interested in symbolism, which is probably all of our listeners, because they're listening to the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, um, this is a very likely story as to where this term symbolism comes from in its earliest, earliest iterations in the yeah. classical period. I would be very curious to see some more work done on this. I'm intrigued enough to th that there's uh, something to find. And the main pieces that I would look for is a link between the Neoplatonists and the Romantics, because the symbol, uh, such as it, it, the, the large uh, part of our own uh, cognitive architecture that I think it occupies now is due to a revival of the term during the Romantic period. And they were at the time reinventing the idea of the symbol. They were doing it in a way that's, again, one of the other ironies of intellectual history is they were doing it in a way that they thought was contrasting with allegory. Um, mm. And for them, what they meant by allegory was what was happening uh, with the term in the Renaissance, which was a kind of performative lockstep one-to-one -one correspondence between a figure on stage, usually dramatic performance, and some abstract idea. In other words, a, a place where interpretive murkiness was never at stake. The point of allegory in their understanding in the Renaissance was to make meanings plain and not need interpretation. The, the, the Romantics will react and they need a new term to talk about what they want to do. So they are, and at the time they're doing it, key figures in Romanticism are reading Proclus, um, not least Coleridge and others, uh, you know, reading him in translations by this figure, Thomas Taylor, and then German uh, German thinkers as well around the city of Jena are, are recovering uh, manuscripts of Proclus, Victor Cousin and, and 
is producing French translations of Proclus. Um, Hegel thinks highly of Proclus during the same kind of time. I don't want to make Hegel into romantic, but mm. in, in the same spirit. So what, what you're seeing is a recovery of, of a Neoplatonic tradition around the term symbol, I think, that's producing in their minds this new more esoteric, more exotic form of signification that's capable of deep invocation, and in their minds, a particular ontological connection. I was just uh, going to say, yeah, it's, that, I, it's that we can get to getting yeah. into truth with the capital T. Yes, territory. Yes, for the Romantics. Let's go back to Porphyry, because Porphyry. Well, I have one. I have one kind of niggling question yeah. about Porphyry's on the cave of the nymphs for you, and then a more interesting, broad interpretive question as well. Okay. Firstly, to introduce this this piece of literature to our listeners, we'll, we'll actually cover it in the podcast in some depth when we get to it. But this is a little standalone work of Porphyry, who's a, a Platonist philosopher, a student of Plotinus, in which he interprets a short passage of Homer, in, which is a very odd passage of Homer, it must be said. Um, a little standalone set piece, which talks about this interesting cave where there's some nymphs and there's some funny stuff around the cave. There's some jars and things. And then explicates the esoteric meaning of this Homeric piece as Platonist metaphysics. My, my small niggling question is why does Porphyry use the term symbolon here again and again and again? Why not enigma? Because we're in Homeric territory we're not talking about Pythagoreans. We're not talking about Egyptians. We're talking about good old Homer. And why the shift of vocabulary? This, this strikes me as an odd shift of vocabulary. Did it, did it ever strike you as odd? Uh, it's, I think it's a wonderful question. Uh, he does show preference for symbol, but it's not to the exclusion. Enigma is still an operative term for him. Mm. Allegoria is either not present or not prominent in the text, but enigma is, uh, and symbolon is by far the most prominent. Now, I think what's happened is that there's a, a, a set of terms that a person can use to describe this kind of, of signification. There, there is surface kind of signification, and then when a person starts to talk about the a hidden signification that requires deeply ingenious hermeneutic work to extract, then you need to use different vocabulary to talk about it. And here, Enigma and Sumalan, I think by Porphyry's time, are, are roughly synonymous right. um, to indicate this. And he shows a preference here for Sumalan. And I think uh, Proclus will as well, although Enigma still maintains an important position there too. So I think it's just an evolution in the vocabulary used mm. to describe this material rather than a different conceptualization of the kind of indication he thinks is happening. I don't believe he's using Sumalan purposefully to try to separate it from other kinds of reading that might use Enigma. So based on the, the limited amount of text we have left from late antiquity, we could maybe say that in the third century, CE, there's a general move toward the terms becoming roughly equivalent, at least in yes. yeah, in the, in this sort of highfalutin Platonist um, vocabulary yes. of interpretation. Yes. Now, now some of that uh, we would want a little bit further nuance, but I think that's that, that's true. When we get to Proclus, things get a little bit different. Uh, he has a very specific definition of different kinds of poetic representation and symbol. There, takes a very specific niche. Uh, Enigma remains the best sort of general term for it in Proclus. And I think it's probably true that Sumbalon is a very, is, is a good general term. In Porphyry, it becomes more specific in Proclus. Can you just tell us uh, a little bit about that since you've, you've um, hinted at it? What, what does Proclus tell us these different terms mean? 
Yes, uh, happy to. Uh, well, Proclus is uh, inheriting a love of Plato and Homer from his predecessors, but in a way that Porphyry didn't really directly address in the material we have surviving to us. Proclus directly addresses how do we square uh, our love of Homer with our love of Plato, since Plato had such stringent things to say against the poets in general, and almost always Homer wanted, he wanted to pick on a single one. Um, what was Plato up to in this disagreement with the poets? And how is it that we might think these two things could be both thought of as valuable, even though Plato says such nasty things about the poet? Um, so he, he needs to reconcile the two of them in, in a way. And, and I think that, you know, this in, in his work, in this project, the symbol takes on a, a really mighty and important role. He says that when Plato is disagreeing with Homeric poetry, he's really disagreeing with certain kinds of Homeric poetry or certain kinds of poetry, sorry, uh, that yes, a person could find in Homer, but not really all that prominent in Homer. So poetry that is merely you know, at the very low end that merely represents the, the, our perceptions of things. He says it's the very lowest kind of poetry. And when Plato is disagreeing with poetry in general, he's disagreeing with that kind of it. There's other, though, he says, kinds of poetry that aren't just imitative of the realities that they imitate, but they can actually carry a deep connection with the realities that they in indicate. And when poets do this, this is when Plato says his more complimentary things about poetry, as he does say a few good things about them in the Phaedrus, and there'll be a little bit about them elsewhere. Uh, Proclus takes the ion as not being filled with irony, as we tend to do. Um, so he thinks, uh, as in his reading, the unironic uh, ion. And he says, when Plato's doing these praises of the poets, what he means to praise is a certain kind of poetry. And for, for Proclus, that kind of poetry is the symbolic. Key difference is that symbol transcends mere representation. It doesn't work by resemblance. So a symbol might have no resemblance to the thing that it indicates. Instead, he says it works by direct ontological connection. Now, you say to yourself, okay, it sounds like a deeply extravagant idea, and how could such a person even understand such a thing? Well, Proclus has a metaphysics that has been inherited from Plotinus and refined over generations of thinkers, in which this makes perfect sense. The universe such as we know around us is the result of the overflowing plentitude of this of this highest, not even really an entity, this, this highest Same. nodal point of the universe, the one. And since all things flow out of the one, then the reality as a whole is traceable back to the one. And all of the world, including the lowliest material things, carry a trace of the one inside of them. Now, that trace is an actual ontological connection between all things that exist and the font, uh, the font of existence. So Proclus is claiming that some poets are so attuned to the shape of the universe that they can pick some little piece of the universe that is connected to another piece of the universe via the ontological connection of the overflowing plenitude of the one. And when they do, that piece of the universe stands in a relationship to the other one at, in one of direct ontological connection, not one of imitation. So he has a non-imitative form of poetry. Symbols don't need to resemble the things that they indicate. In fact, they don't. Instead, they are ontologically connected based on an esoteric understanding of the hidden pathways that link all of the universe together. Um, and there he has his answer. He can say that when Plato is saying that Homer is producing things that aren't decorous on the surface, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what he can claim is that 
Plato's actually saying that it's the surface thing that's the problem, but the real hidden referent of even an incongruous surface might be a hidden truth that's profound and perfect that may not have any resemblance to it. So it's based on a hidden esoteric ontology. Plato can come up with this idea of symbol. So everything is quantumly entangled, basically, but in, yes. a, in a very different way from uh, modern <laughs> quantum theory. There's a so. divine sympathy. But um, I, I find really fascinating the way that it's quantum entanglement, sort of like the, um, the information-based or the mathematically based quantum theory of Max Tegmark, if you've come across this idea. The idea that the fundamental substrate of all reality is, is in the end a kind of mathematics. And, and thus, you'd have, when you have ontology, you have information, you have meaning. So this is very Proclin, right? It's like the universe really is a kind of book with no end, infinitely deep, like Borgesian tome that's all interconnected and cross-referenced. And I mean, a, another piece in, in Proclus's particular version of this that, that is powerful for him is uh, there's a, a ritual dimension to this symbol as well. Um, so he, along with other post-Yemblichian Neoplatonists, are practitioners of a practice called theurgy, um, in which uh, different pieces of the material world uh, are used to animate or ensoul, uh, enliven the divine uh, into material objects. So you might have a statue of Apollo, and you would take some little piece of the universe that's supposed to be directly connected to, to Apollo and insert it into the statue's mouth. Apollo would then arrive, um, and the symbol is not any representation of Apollo. The mm. symbol is an active, activating ingredient that makes Apollo present inside the, the material object. And isn't, and, isn't, sorry to interrupt, but isn't that almost a return to, via a very circuitous route, a return to the original meaning of symbolon? Because you have, let's say this is Apollo over here, and this is the chrysolite or the little branch of laurel or whatever that Apollo is sympathetic to. I think um, so. It brings them together, right? Yes, they I fit. think so. And it, it carries through, uh, one can see why uh, symbol evolved into a form of representation that didn't require resemblance. Hmm. Uh, because as in the case of the past, the verificatory uh, token that matches the other, it doesn't resemble the other one exactly. The point is that it lines up, that it has a direct link to it. Hmm. Um, and yes, in Proclus, these things need to have a direct link. So in that sense, it's consonant with uh, the, the, fun the, the functionality of the ancient symbol, which doesn't rely on resemblance at all. And, and then, you know, you start to think about these things in a literary context, and you can see where the romantics go with it. To imagine that you have such a thing as a non-representational form of representation, it's close to suspending the principle of non-contradiction. So you, you've got a, a, a way in which you can claim that anything means just about anything, and very potent literary tool, a very potent literary tool. Mm -hmm. um, Peter, I'm, I'm conscious that we've, we've gone on for some time, and... Uh... We've gone from the early Greek period all the way to one of our latest um, Platonists and covered a lot of amazing material. But maybe you can indulge me to answer one more question, Indeed. which I'd like to put to you. This is the um, incredibly irresponsible question. I wanted to ask you an irresponsible question. So to ask you to step outside your, your shoes as a, a careful, historical, responsible scholar and just play with ideas. There is the idea of the intentional fallacy. This is an idea that has come up in modern literary criticism. It's very prominent in the latter half of the 20th century. The idea that 
by reading a text, we can actually say anything about what the person who wrote it meant, right? Um, and people have even taken this to the extreme now, you know, so the author is dead. There is no author. There is only text. You can't talk about what Shakespeare wanted to say when he wrote Romeo and Juliet. There's just simply the text of Romeo and Juliet. Every time you read it, it's a different text. Every, every different reader is a different text. And I've also read and come across the idea and pondered the idea that the ancients in general, ancient readers, were fully in the thrall of the intentional fallacy. So they basically thought if something's in a text, the author meant to put it there. What do you think of that? Um, I do think that as surely with these Neoplatonists that we've been talking about, uh, they link uh, the, the profound ideas they find in Homer always with Homer's own intention. And that's true for Porphyry, it's true for Proclus. Uh, the idea that Homer is a polymath is, is widely shared among allegorical readers. And that's generally true across allegorical readers, but it's not true for all of them. Uh, there's a figure that I point you to called Cornutus, um, who writes during the Roman period, and he writes uh, different kinds of tracts, one of which is a way of epitomizing the Greek gods uh, for a, a very general audience. And he goes through and he, and he reads the different poets, Homer and Hesiod are his main pieces of evidence, uh, but then he also looks at cultic epithets and cultic practices, and he reads all these, trying to get a sense of what these gods are all about. And he, in his text, his use of, he uses allegory very widely uh, to try to understand, you know, what did Homer mean about Apollo in a particular case. But he will say whether Homer actually meant to say such a thing or not, whether the poet meant, this is still in there, still in the poem. Um, so authorial intention in, in the case of Cornutus, I think there's a, there's a question mark might a text be able to carry a meaning that the author didn't intend? Um, that to me is an interesting question. I think the answer to that is probably yes. Uh, I think that uh, our world is, and our minds are saturated with things that are meaningful, some of which we're in full command of, but some of which we're not fully cognizant of. And when we produce rich, potent cultural artifacts, uh, we may be purposely, self-consciously guiding our thoughts to produce a meaning for a reader. We may just be saying things that sound to us marvelous and we just keep saying them. And then someone later discovers a meaning that we might not have been in full control of when we were producing it. That's an idea that I see on occasion in the allegorical tradition in antiquity, uh, not uh, only a modern idea, uh, but it's not the most common one. More common is uh, figures like Porphyry and Proclus that think that Homer really was a genius and just built all of this built the whole instruction manual of how the cosmos works into his poem. Not only a genius, but a 5th century CE Platonist genius. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, <laughs> yeah, a savant. And, you know, what he did, I think, in that way that Plato would, the Platonists would say, uh, there is a way things are. We, we know that now, and certain precursors to us knew that too, mm. even despite uh, their, their having to work in a time when the fullness of Plato's meanings weren't fully realized. They still got it. Even Homer kind of got what Plato was going to say later and what they understood Plato to say at their time. Well, Peter Strzok, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure. Much appreciated. Very, very interesting conversation. Till next time, stay esoteric. <laughs>